you will join me, we will ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, we thank you so much for bringing our dear sister Catherine here safely. And she's a little under the weather. Um, we ask you to give her supernatural um, mercy and grace and uphold her as she teaches us today. And may everything that's said and done will bring you glory and change our lives. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. I wanted to begin like I did yesterday. How many of you have heard of Adrian Rogers, one of my all-time Bible preachers? He's with the Lord, but I just still like to listen to him. He has a book available. Maybe some of you have gotten it called Adrianisms. <laughs> you know how everything he says is so profound, and he has all these great little sayings. Um, one of them that I, I don't know, I didn't put the bookmark in here, but I think I know it by heart. Here it is. Since this, this ties in with our study, which is Old Testament Christology, finding Christ throughout the whole Old Testament. We already know he's in the New Testament. But he says, if you read the Bible and you don't find Jesus, go back and reread it. It is a hymn book. Isn't that good? <laughs> you know, we always say history is what? His story. And now this is a hymn book. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. All right, let's see. Are you opened up to, we're going to try to cover two whole chapters. Yes, I do have a cold. I'm sure you figured that one out. I kept my grandchildren, four of them, four out of the, well, now I can say four out of nine, right? Because one's in the oven. But I, <laughs> I had them last week. And, of course, when you keep grandchildren at my age, guess what? You usually get sick, and I did, got sick. So here it is. You get the privilege of listening to me. Um, I've entitled this lesson, The Last Straw, and you probably can figure out where that comes from, right? Last week was Moses Beats Around the Bush. We had an evangelist, we had a revival service last week at our church, and the last night of the service, the uh, fellow gets up there to preach and he says, open up your Bibles to Exodus chapters 3, 4, 3 and 4, and I went, oh no! <laughs> <laughs> and he taught about, of course, the burning bush and all Moses' excuses and everything and all the ladies in the church that go to our Monday Bible study. He told me later on, because I shared with him that we had just, he said, I wondered why everyone knew the answers to the questions. <laughs> I said, they better. But I told him about the title, Moses Beats Around the Bush, and I guarantee he loved it. I'm sure he's going to use that. I wonder how he's not here now, but I could tell him about the last straw. <laughs> All right, it was the Lord's time. And here's another Adrianism that was in the book. Do you know to God, timing is more important than time? Because he's outside of time, isn't he? With him, a thousand years is as a day. So timing is more important than time. But it was his time to intervene in human history to continue the fulfilling of his covenant promises to his people. Now they, as slaves, for many, many centuries, at least two, three, four hundred centuries, I mean, hundred years, had been thinking probably that God had forgotten about them. Maybe he had forgotten his covenant promises because now they're slaves and things are not so good. But he had been working. He's always working behind the scenes, isn't he? Even when he thinks he, we think he's forgotten about us. He had been working to prepare Moses, his, the rod, the instrument he was going to use to deliver them. He was preparing Moses through shepherding and he was further preparing Israel through suffering for the great exodus. Now, surprisingly, I don't know if it surprised you, but it did surprise me because I always pictured Moses as this great man of faith. So his first 80 years kind of were a letdown as I've studied them closely. I have never really studied the book of Exodus, so I'm learning right along with you. I just know, you know, what I was taught by preachers in Sunday school and that kind of thing. But as you get into the meat, you see, wow, this guy really had some problems until he was finally 80 years old. But he at first was hesitant wasn't he? Very hesitant, disbelieving, and even unwilling. And all that was after the Lord, speaking to him from the burning bush, had assured him, you know, he gave him the commission, you're going to go to Egypt and deliver your people, but he then assured him that I will be with you. 
I will continually be with you. I will provide. I'll meet every provision. And you will be successful eventually. (laughs) You will have success in your mission. But he was still hesitant and unwilling, even after all that, and even after God revealed to him his great I am that I am name, and then demonstrated who he was and his power by his two sign miracles, the rod to the serpent miracle and the uh, hand leprosy miracle. Even after all that, he was pretty unwilling, wasn't he? But when he almost lost his life. And I qualify that almost with quotation marks because it's, I think of it sort of as Isaac almost lost his life on Mount Moriah when his dad was going to sacrifice him. But was his dad really going to be allowed to sacrifice him? Do you think the Lord was really, really going to kill Moses? It was an almost thing. It was a test to get the attention. This was Moses's all night wrestling with the Lord experience. So when, but when he almost did lose his life, he finally, the Lord finally got his full attention. What the burning bush didn't do, the bloody bridegroom episode did accomplish. And he was finally ready to obey his master. When he returned to Egypt, now this We are not told what I'm going to tell you next in this passage. We don't find out about this until we get to, I think it's uh, Genesis chapter 18. But we do find out that after the circumcision event, Zipporah and the two sons were sent back to Jethro. I don't think they'd gotten very far in their journey when that, maybe it was the first night of their journey, I don't know. But Moses sent them back to live with her father, his father-in-law. And the reason for that, I don't know, because it's not given. Some people say Moses was angry at her. I don't think so, because she just saved his life. Some people say that she was angry at him. That's probably more like it. Um, But perhaps the real reason is because the son, who was not a little kid, somewhere 30 to 40 years old probably, needed time to heal. It was not a good time to make a journey to Egypt. Furthermore, there is this picture to consider. Remember, everything is typology. Pictures? Okay, so Zipporah, the Gentile wife of Moses, represents the church. Moses is a type of Christ. She is a type of the church. Now, if the church went with him into Egypt, where God then poured out all his wrath in the plague judgments, would that not be a picture of the church in the tribulation? Yeah, yeah, some of those, if you don't follow me, don't worry about it, just get my books on Revelation, which I forgot to bring, I'm sorry, Debbie, you've got to, you know what, you just need to call me, (laughs) emails and texts don't seem to do it, (laughs) okay, Uh, but anyway, um, so that is another, if you follow me, that's another very strong support for a pre-tribulation rapture, okay, Well, when Moses returned to Egypt, and who did he return with? He didn't return with his wife and two sons. He returned with his brother Aaron. Um, And now he is a different man. Moses is finally Charlton Heston, you know, the guy we think about. (laughs) He was, I know, I do love Charlton Heston. And you know what? I got to thinking about Pharaoh was Yule Brenner. You younger ones probably don't know who we're talking about. Do you? Do you? And I like Ewell Brenner, too. Anyway, uh, when he returned, he was a different man. He had left Egypt because he had tried to deliver Israel um, as sort of a self-proclaimed type of leader. Right? Uh, I, I almost would say a worldly leader, but he had forsaken all the treasures and pleasures of Egypt, so I can't really say that. But he he ran ahead of God. He returned, however, as a God-sent leader, a servant leader. There is a difference. To be a servant leader, the greatest in the kingdom of God is what? Who? The servant, yeah. Greatest is, or like a little child, a servant. Um, Well, little children aren't very good servants, but... (laughs) 
<laughs> the greatest is the servant, you know. It's the opposite of the world. In the world, it's a pyramid, and the leader is up on the top. In, in the Christian world, the leader is on the bottom this way, right? Okay, so a servant leader is actually more difficult because it goes against man, man's natural inclination, which is to lead with authority and with power and control using your own wisdom and, uh, and strength to meet certain objectives. Pharaoh was a world's type of leader. The servant leader, however, is driven by love. He loves the ones he serves. And he relies on himself? No, he relies on the Lord's wisdom and the Lord's strength. So he returned as that type of leader. It took 40 years of tending sheep and both a burning bush and a bloody bridegroom episode to transform him. But he finally learned how to follow the good shepherd. Therefore, he was promoted to the position of being the servant shepherd of Israel, which is why he's always going to be carrying that staff with him. I should have brought it again. You know, I had that shepherd's staff with me last time. Yes, I do need that. She reads my mind or she hears my nose, one or the other. <laughs> Thank you. Now, when Moses was reunited with Aaron, and what are the ages of these two guys? <laughs> Eight. 83. Aaron is three years older. He's 83 and Moses is 80. And you're just, you know, that's not really as old as we think of it today. It's probably more comparable to being about 50. Um, back in those days, they, they were the two mighty witnesses. Now remember, there's a lot of parallel between the tribulation that Egypt goes through and Israel goes through before the great exodus and the tribulation, the yet future tribulation coming in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 to 19. And don't we find two mighty witnesses in Revelation? Yeah, chapter 11. Well, these guys are your two mighty witnesses of the old exodus, Moses and Aaron. Um, when they get to Egypt, they meet with the elders of Israel, as they had been told to do. And when the elders hear that God had seen their affliction and that he himself had actually come down to deliver them, and then that report was confirmed by those two sign miracles, the staff to serpent and what else? Water to blood. He didn't do the leprosy miracle with them. And you discussed that in your groups, didn't you? Okay, didn't do the leprosy miracle. But when they saw those, no, no, this is the elders. He maybe did with them. Yeah, right. He never did it with Pharaoh. Um, but when they saw, yeah, when they saw the serpent and the leprosy miracle, and that confirmed Moses and Aaron's message, they were delighted, weren't they? And they were so overwhelmed that what did they do? They bowed down and they worshiped God. So chapter 4 ended on a good note. Now we get into chapter 5. And Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh as they had been commissioned to do. They speak in one accord, although who actually does the speaking? Aaron. Aaron does the speaking. And they say, look at 5 verse 1. Here's what they say. They're standing before Mo, um, uh, Pharaoh. He's probably sitting on his royal throne, and they say, Thus saith the Lord God, that is Yahweh Elohim of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. Now, is that a request or a command? <laughs> it's a pretty bold command, isn't it? Let my people go. Uh, that took a lot of confidence in their God and their assignment took a lot of boldness to do that because a Pharaoh was a monarch whose power was not held in check by either a constitution or a Congress or a Supreme Court. What he decreed, even if it was a death sentence, was to be unquestionably carried out. And he very well could have said, off with their heads like the Queen of Hearts in Alice in Wonderland, right? <laughs> um, so that was bold for them to do that. Egypt's pharaohs were considered the children of Ra, the sun god. And therefore, they were considered 
worthy of worship themselves. They worshiped their pharaohs. Now, where was Moses raised? He was raised in Egypt's palace, wasn't he? With a step-grandfather who was actually a pharaoh. If his mother was Hatshepsut, or whatever her name is, how it's pronounced, she too was a temporary pharaohess. She even wore a little beard to look like a man. Um, but he knew, he knew all about this godship concept uh, that the Egyptians had toward their pharaohs. He knew of the authority of the man sitting in front of him. But something else he knew, which was a lot more important, because he was also raised as a Hebrew, and he learned about the true God from his mom and dad, right? He also knew that the man sitting in front of him was really just a man. (laughs) No God. And he didn't have the backing of Yahweh Elohim, did he? Like Moses. Well, you can imagine the hearts of the Hebrew people probably went with Moses and Aaron as they entered into the palace. And they would be, uh, well, of course, they had to be working, but all the while, they're probably praying for them, hoping they come out. (laughs) And maybe even come out waving triumphantly Israel's worship, emancipation, proclamation in their hands. You know, because the, the request was, just for a three days journey into the desert so they could worship their God. So they're hoping and praying that they'll come out with that. Now just think if that, this is hypothetical, what what if that had happened? What if they're in there for a little while and then Moses and Aaron come out and they say to the people, here it is, we can make our religious pilgrimage for three days. Who would have gotten the glory if that was the case? Well, yeah, somewhat Pharaoh. They would thank Pharaoh, but Moses and Aaron, basically, they'd say, oh, you did it, you did it, I can't believe you did it. You know, they would get the glo- they would rob God of the glory, right? He would be robbed of the glory. Israel was going to need, need to learn that um, true deliverance is only accomplished by the Lord, by the power of Almighty God. Isn't that true? True deliverance. Well, the response question of Pharaoh, and that's what I call it because it's a question, but it's really a statement as well, um, to the demand of these two aged Hebrews standing before him was the right question, but it certainly was not asked with the right motive. He didn't ask, who are you guys? Actually, he knows who they are. I'm not sure how that worked, but he calls them by name later on, you'll see. Uh, But he doesn't say, who are you? He says, who is the Lord? See verse 2? Who is the Lord? Now, if he had paused at that point to seriously hear their response, you know, who is the Lord? And then he stops, wants to hear the answer. That, That would have been a better indicator of a potentially positive outcome. That would have indicated he might have had a little bit of an opening in his heart to find out who is this Yahweh Elohim that you're talking about. But the haughty ruler didn't pause in his question statement, his question statement, because he had absolutely no interest in learning who the Lord is. His question was actually rhetorical, meaning he didn't expect an answer. It was disrespectful and it was sarcastic. Um, intonation is everything, isn't it? Here's how he really asked it. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? That was his way of stating that he, the great son of Ra, the sun god, had no reason whatsoever to obey the voice of some god who was obviously too powerless for his enslaved people to worship him without his permission. He had no respect for a God like that. He can't even get his people to worship him unless he comes to me and asks for permission. So he had no interest in knowing about this God. He had no interest in hearing any more about him or certainly not in obeying such a weak, weak God. So without an ounce of fear, 
His quick reply was negative. He would not let Israel go and take a three-day leave of absence so she could hold a feast with sacrifices to her Lord. Now, Bible critics, we're going to divert for a minute, but uh, I like to give you some apologetics as we study the scripture because Bible critics, and they are abundant, even within Christendom, so be careful. They like to jump on the Lord's three-day journey statement. You know, that was what the Lord told Moses to tell Pharaoh back in chapter 3, verse 18. And the Bible critics say they use that as an excuse um, or a reason to accuse God of deception, purposeful deception. They say that this was just a ruse. It was a ploy so that Israel could then escape Egypt permanently. You know, get her three days out into the desert and then just hightail it out of there. So they say God was being deceptive in what he was telling Moses to do. Uh, However, how do we analyze something like that? Well, we begin with knowing, looking at what scripture tells us about God to begin with. Does scripture not say that God cannot lie? Is there one thing God cannot do? Yeah, it's sin. God cannot sin. He is impeccable. That means he cannot sin. Another thing we learn from the book of James in the New Testament is that God does not ever tempt, much less command anyone to do evil. And deception is evil. So, We know that about God, so the Bible critics must be wrong. There's got to be some other explanation. And we find that it is perfectly consistent with what we know about God, that he gives men incremental tests in preparation for more difficult challenges. For example, let's say he gives you a little test, like he asks you to obey him in some little way, like keep the nursery during the revival services. Okay, (laughs) I didn't find that. That's not really little. Um, And then you obey, and then he gives you a bigger test and a bigger test and a bigger test. So he gives tests incrementally, right? That's what he does, and he does it throughout the scripture. So the right assumption, here's something else we know about God. He is the God of truth. It says so many places, Psalm 35, 1 is 1. So he did, therefore, intend for the Israelites to go a three days journey into the wilderness in order to worship him. That wasn't a ruse. That wasn't a ploy. He did want them to do that. Now, being omniscient, what does that mean? Means he's all knowing. He knows the end from the beginning. He did know that Pharaoh would forbid this initial um, test request or command he knew he would not obey it but he presented it to pharaoh anyway along with numerous additional opportunities for pharaoh to give in to concede to his commands he gives him sign miracles he gives him the plague judgments um and his next request as we'll see even this morning was to let Israel go out of the land permanently. He doesn't even add the three days journey. Okay? Uh, Now, if he had obeyed, he would have saved himself and his people a whole lot of pain and loss. He could have, you know what? He could have been blessed instead of cursed. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those that bless you, Israel, descendants of Abraham. Isn't that what happened with Joseph's Pharaoh? This Pharaoh could have turned out to be a friend of Israel, like Joseph's Pharaoh. And he could have been abundantly blessed if he had given in and said, okay, three days journey, that's not too bad. And then, you know, God would have opened his heart further and further. He would have softened his heart instead of doing what? Hardening. Hardening it. Well, and here he did. Pharaoh began the process of hardening his heart when he refused to hear anything about God from the two brothers. But whether he liked it or not, he would, he would hear the answer to his question, 
Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And guess who would give him the answer to that question? The Lord himself. And it would come in the form of ten horrible plagues. And those plagues would definitely show Pharaoh who Yahweh Elohim is. They would demonstrate that his power far infinitely more exceeds Egypt's puny little Pharaoh and all his magicians and his false gods and his army put together. Who actually put that Pharaoh on his throne? God did. Well, so the confrontation had begun, and it wasn't between a reigning pharaoh and an elderly fugitive who had possible claims to his throne, because Moses did have a claim to the throne, didn't he? His mother, stepmother, and step-grandfather had been pharaohs, so he had a claim to that throne. But the war isn't between Pharaoh and Moses. It's not even a battle between Egypt and Israel. The real confrontation is between God and who's his greatest foe? Satan. And you know, Satan and his demonic forces are very, very good at tricking millions of people, millions and billions of people, that they are gods, the small g. Many people worshiping idols are actually worshiping demons. Behind every idol is a what? A demon. Now, Moses had been forewarned. God had told him ahead of time that Pharaoh would not agree to the command to let Israel go a a three-day journey into the wilderness to worship him. He knew that. That was back in 3.18. In fact, what God was going to do is he was going to use Pharaoh's evil to demonstrate his own glory to the world. Doesn't he take that which man meant for evil and use it for good? That's what he was going to do here. Moses was also told ahead of time in advance that ultimately Israel would be redeemed from her bondage. That was in chapter 3, verse 20. It would be successful. Remember, he said, I'll give you a sign. Your people and you'll all meet me back here at the foot of this mountain, Mount Sinai, where the burning bush was. And yet, when Pharaoh's flat-out denial came, which was on the heels of that denial, it was followed by further distress that's put on Israel. Um, Moses' faith was tested, and so was Israel's. And that's what we find in the rest of Exodus chapter 5. Stunned by Pharaoh's insolence and his total disinterest and his disdain for Yahweh, Moses and Aaron tried to And I don't know why they were stunned, because they had been told ahead of time, but they still were shocked about it. And so what they tried to do is soften God's command. Let my people go. They said, well, maybe that's a little bit too harsh for this guy. So let's soften it a bit and make it more of a humble request. But first, they explain to Pharaoh who Yahweh Elohim is, because he said, who is the Lord, you know? This guy you're talking about, this God. And so they tell him that Yahweh is the name of the God of the Hebrews. That's in verse 3. And then they went on to tell the Pharaoh that they had actually met with the God of the Hebrews. Now Moses, we know, met with him where? In Midian, at the burning bush. When did Aaron meet with him? It says they met with him. Well, Aaron, obviously, the Lord had met with Aaron somehow, somewhere. It's not recorded, but he knew to go to Midian to meet his brother, didn't he? So the Lord had met with him and probably told him the assignment, too. So they explained to Pharaoh that their God had actually met with them in order to give them the message that they had just delivered. And then they're very modest and they're very polite because they say, let us go, pretty please. Basically, you know, let us go, we pray thee, please. See, they're softening it. And uh, what they're implying here is, you know, we're not, we're not really asking anything super, super ridiculous. Uh, we're not asking to assemble in one of your great cities like Cairo or Memphis or Thebes or something like that. Because how many, how many Hebrews were there? Some two million. They even go as high, some guess, as high as three million, but at least two million people. Can you imagine if they assembled together to worship God in one of the major cities? That could really threaten Pharaoh, right? Because they could rush the palace or something. So, you know, they're saying, we just want to go out into the desert, out into the wilderness for three days. 
We're not even going to take our cattle. We're not going to take our belongings or anything. We're just going to go out there, worship God, and then come back. So they're trying to soften the command. Um, Now, we'll find out later as we get into the plagues that when we get to the fourth plague, which is the plague of swarming flies. Imagine flies everywhere. Everywhere. I mean, just everywhere in your food and everything. Uh, Well, (laughs) by that time, I mean, there had just been the frogs before that. (laughs) So the frogs and then the flies and then comes the lice, I think. I don't know the order exactly. But when, when the flies hit, Pharaoh tries to compromise with Moses. He attempts to compromise, and he says, okay, okay, Mm, this is really pretty gross. So um, I will agree to let you sacrifice to your God in the land. That's in 8.1. And then he goes on to say that he does not want them very far away. Well, why would that be? Obviously, so they wouldn't escape if he lets them. That's his fear. You know, if he lets them too far away, they'll just go on. He wants to keep them close. He wants to keep them in the land sacrificing so he can keep an eye on them and have his army surround them or whatever is necessary. Well, Moses refuses to compromise. He refuses that. And he gives Pharaoh a very good reason for not sacrificing to their God in the land. And it's one Pharaoh would understand. You see, if the Hebrews offered sacrifices in the land, the Egyptian people would be very offended. The sacrifices of animals on their soil by a shepherding people, what did they think of shepherds? Ugh, abomination. And not only were these a shepherding people, but now they're a brick-making slave people a shepherding, brick-making slave people, offering sacrifices on our land, that would be <laughs> comparable today to offering a pig in a, in a Muslim mosque. You think that might start an uprising? Or how about a holy cow in a Hindu temple? <laughs> Not wise. And so uh, that's the reason he gives, I can't, you know, we have to get out in the desert where the people aren't going to see us and they're not going to be offended. Well, continuing with the softer version of God's request, Moses and Aaron added another important reason that they needed to obey their God, his command. If they did not do what he had commanded, he might, this is at the end of verse 3, he might fall on us with pestilence and with the sword. Who are they talking about? Who's the us? Israel. If we don't obey our God by worshiping him, sacrificing to him, he just might fall on us in judgment. Now, that was very clever because, and he might do that because they, we'll talk about, they had actually turned to idol worship big time, the Israelites. Um, But this was really clever because it was a veiled threat to Pharaoh. The implication was that if the Lord was so displeased with his own people for not obeying him, that he might fall on them with pestilence and judgment, how much more displeased would he be with Egypt and with Pharaoh for hindering his people from obeying him? You get it? So that's that's a clever little threat there. But it didn't soften (laughs) the heart or threaten him at all, the obstinate king. Um, He didn't evidence any fear whatsoever at the indirect threat of judgment from the God of the Hebrews. In fact, he's angry now. He's angry at Moses and Aaron, who here is where he addresses them by name, so he does know who they are. Somehow he's learned who they are. Uh, I'm not sure if he knows who Moses is from the past. Do you know that? I'm not sure, because he had killed an Egyptian. If he really knew who he was, maybe he would have arrested him, thrown him in prison, killed him. I don't know. Anyway, he knows their names, and he's angry at them. Uh, and, and the reason for it is because he says you, you're trying to take the people from their work. That's in verse 4. Not only did he blatantly reject Yahweh, but he expresses his disdain here for the Israelites themselves, his slaves. He accuses them of being idle, lazy, slothful workers. He's basically accusing 
um, Moses and Aaron of trying to disturb the status quo. Why are you trying to upset the apple cart? You know, we've got a good thing going here with all these people doing our work for us. (laughs) Maybe he's even thinking they're trying to plot some kind of a sedition against him. So he's essentially asking them, why are you encouraging this? And then he also, in verse 5, addresses his concern about the overpopulation of the Hebrews. Remember how they're multiplying? That was under Joseph's pharaoh. Well, guess what? They're still multiplying. (laughs) And uh, he's concerned about it. Uh, Two million people, that's a lot of people to keep under control and not have revolt against you. So he suggests that in giving them rest from their burdens, that would only encourage their increase. You know, if I give them a three-day holiday, what do you think they might do? (laughs) They might keep on (laughs) reproducing. So to his mindset, uh, it was a waste of good working time for his slaves to take a three-day religious pilgrimage out into the desert. The accusation against Moses and Aaron for attempting to distract the Israelites from their work of, and what was their work? Making what? Making bricks for Egyptian construction. After he accuses them of trying to keep the people from their job, he then immediately, that very same day, it says, goes to his Egyptian taskmasters and the Hebrew officers who worked under them. See, you've got Pharaoh, then under him the taskmasters. They're Egyptians, and they're cruel. But under them you have Hebrews that work for them. They're uh, officers of some sort, and they make sure their own people. I don't know, maybe they even had to translate for the people to understand. I'm not sure, but um, they worked under the taskmasters. He goes to both groups of men, and uh, he tells them that the workload of the Israelites is to be increased. No longer would they be given what? The straw, the last straw. No longer would they be given the straw to mix with the clay to mold into bricks. Now, the straw actually helped in the drying process. It would open up the pores of the, of the clay, the muddy clay that they'd get from the Nile River, and um, the straw in there would help the bricks to dry faster. It also would, was a bonding agent to help hold the clay together. It had several good purposes, so they would add straw into the bricks. And, of course, archaeologists have found these bricks all over the place in Egypt. That's what they used for um, many of the pyramids. Seven of the pyramids in Egypt were right around this time of uh, before and the time of the Exodus. Seven pyramids were built out of these kind of bricks with straw, which is really interesting. Um, I'll tell you something more in a minute. But they they were no longer to be given the straw. From here on, the Hebrews had to go out and get the straw themselves, find the straw, and then uh, that means they had to travel throughout the land. It actually says that they had to travel throughout Egypt and find the straw, gather it together. And in a desert area, it's not abundant to find straw. You know, they said it's not like my yard. Anybody wants straw, you're more than welcome to come and rake it up. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> I got acres and acres of straw. Um, but there in a desert, it's not so easy to find straw, right? So they had to travel. They probably had their kids looking for straw, and everybody, the women, were all looking for straw. Not only would they have to get it, then they'd have to bale it or whatever they do, and then they had to haul it back to the construction sites wherever they were building things. Um, And then the real, so that was a lot of extra labor, but the real problem with this new criterion for the slave labor force was Pharaoh's demand that the brick quotas had to remain the same as when the straw was provided for them. Now that is unreasonable, isn't it? It's totally ridiculous. It's an unreasonable demand And it was intentional. He was purposely intending to turn the Israelites against God's spokesman, Moses and Aaron. See, Pharaoh represents not only the Antichrist in the end times, but he represents his whole world system. 
which rejects God and God's word. He was trying to get the Hebrews to see themselves as being fools for regarding the vain words of God as spoken through his prophets. You see that in verse 9? The vain, isn't that what the world tells us? Aren't we fools to them for believing this book? How foolish for these women to leave their homes and spend an hour and a half, two hours, three hours, however long they, to study this foolish book, you know, and say that it's from God, blah, blah, blah. That's the world system, anti-God, anti-Christ. So that's what he's trying to do. He wants the Hebrews to believe that they were better off before God's prophets came along. And, and, and spoke, supposedly, spoke for their God. What they should do is just forget the whole thing. Forget those guys. And turn and embrace the, Egypt's gods. And, and then also forget all those stories that have been passed down to you from generation to generation about this God of the Hebrews who created the world in only a week, you know, six days and... Oh, that silly story about the flood and all that stuff. Forget all that. You're just foolish for that. And the promise of a coming Savior. Just embrace our gods. You know, after all, your God certainly hasn't seemed to do too, done too much for you. You're a bunch of slaves doing my bidding. So Pharaoh's plan to turn Israel against God and his spokesman began to work with this impossible command to maintain their brick quotas, even with the additional task of gathering straw, which, as I said, was not abundant or easy to be found. Remember back in, uh, let's see, I think it was, yeah, chapter 1, look at verse 11. Chapter 1, verse 11. It says, uh, talks about, therefore they... They, that's the Egyptians did set over them the Hebrews taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens and they built for Pharaoh treasure cities what are those two cities Python and Ramesses two cities treasure cities they were actually where they stored grain grain and and those two cities were built by the Hebrew slaves well in 1883 archaeologists uncovered this city of Python that's mentioned here and sure enough guess what the structures are built of bricks and the bottom layer are bricks with straw then and this is all in your email lesson that you'll get but the mid, the middle layer is suddenly with stubble um, that looks like it's there is not not the regular straw as the bottom layer it almost looks like reeds that are just pulled up from the roots in a hurry like it would be for people who had to meet their quotas and they were in a hurry and they just had to grab anything you know how there were reeds in the river where uh, Jacobed put Moses and that's the middle layer and then the top layer doesn't even have hardly any straw in it at all is a per, it just, like I said yesterday, archaeology is always a friend of the scripture. You don't ever have to fear archaeology. It always eventually supports the scripture. And one day, too, all those evolutionists are going to find out if they don't already know that the whole theory is a big lie. You know, we didn't come from the Neanderthal man and all that stuff. All right, so... Um, his, his, his plan worked um, because it says the, the slaves had to scatter throughout the land and, and they even found it necessary to use stubble instead of straw. You see that? Verse 12. And when the quotas were not met, here's what happened. The Hebrew foremen, the ones right under the Egyptian taskmasters, and they usually had it pretty good. They would beat their own people, but they hardly ever got beaten themselves. And they probably had it, life a lot better than their fellow man. But now all of a sudden, when the quotas aren't being met, the taskmasters are beating them. And they don't like it at all. And so they go before Pharaoh and they complain. And they basically say to Pharaoh, uh, they, they pass the blame on his own people. They don't dare pass the blame on Pharaoh. 
You know, how can we meet the quota when we're not even given the straw anymore and we have that double task of getting the straw, bringing it back, and then making the bricks and having the same quota? He says, the fault is your own people. Well, Pharaoh will have nothing to do with that. And his response, in effect, was, you are just plain stinking lazy. You and your people, you're idle. All you want to do is take a break so you can sacrifice to your Lord because you're lazy, you're slothful. Get back to work. Shut up and get back to work. That's what he says. That's my interpretation of verses 17 and 18. And you will still not be given the straw, and you still have to um, bring forth the same measure of bricks. You know, one of the number one sins that the Egyptians, um, that's a bad sentence, one of the greatest sins for the Egyptians was the sin of laziness. It's not a good, it's a not a good thing to be lazy, is it? No, but I don't really have it at the top of my list. <laughs> As a pride, you know, is something that God hates very, very much. That's where started the whole thing with Lucifer. But they just really looked down their long, pious noses at shepherds and at laziness. So lazy shepherds, that was the worst. But the irony of the whole thing is that they were the ones who were lazy because they had these two million people doing all their work for them, didn't they? They probably even had the women in their kitchen doing their cooking. Well, so the Israelites, the Hebrews, are more miserable than ever. And blaming their evil situation on, who do you think? Who do you think they blame it on? Pharaoh? Hard-hearted Pharaoh? No. They blame the situation on Moses and Aaron. And uh, as soon as the foreman had complained to Pharaoh in the palace, and he said, you're just lazy, get back to work. They come out of the palace, and they, and they see Moses and Aaron, and they point their finger at them, and they say, you have caused us to stink <laughs> in the eyes of Pharaoh. He, is, he abhors us. And uh, so they pass all the blame onto God's prophets, and that has been Israel's history, you know? She has denunciated her God-sent prophets all throughout her history. Remember Joseph? He reveals to his brothers his God-given dream. And what do they do? They want to kill him. And they throw him in a pit. And they sell him as a slave. Here, what do the Israelites do in response to Moses and Aaron? They blame them. And they say, curse them. You made us distinct. And they do it throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament. And on into the New Testament. Even when God sent his son, sent his son what happened? Same old thing, right? Israel denounced him and rejected him. And the apostles as well. So Moses goes before the Lord. This is a good, this is progress. He doesn't just sit down and have a pity party. He doesn't go to Aaron with his complaint. He goes straight to the Lord and he asks the Lord why he has brought new trouble on his people. Um, he says, ever since he had gone before Pharaoh to speak in the Lord's name, the king had done nothing but add evil to his own people. And so Moses, in verses 22 and 23, Moses wonders why God sent him in the first place. Why did you even bother to send me when Israel is just worse off than she had been before I came? And you've done nothing at all to, to deliver her. Evidently, at this point, he's having a senior moment, right? He forgot that God, back at the burning bush, had predicted that Pharaoh would initially deny the request, the command. And he had warned him that he would harden his heart. He also seems to have forgotten the Lord's prophecy that it would take his smiting hand of judgment before, and even the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son, before Pharaoh would finally concede and let Israel go. But he's like you and I. Don't we need divine reassurance from time to time? Yeah, almost every day. <laughs> so the Lord graciously reassures Moses of the eventual success of his mission. And it's coming. And it's coming very soon because he opens up chapter 6, verse 1, with this word, now. Now, Moses, you get ready. Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand shall he let them go and look at this and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land i'm telling you moses you ain't seen nothing yet not only is he gonna let my people go he's gonna say get out of here 
He's going to drive them out of the land. By God's mighty hand. Not only would Pharaoh consent, but he would drive her out. The focus is back where it should always be. Right? And the the Lord reminds Moses of this when he says, I am the Lord. Verse 2. The focus is back where it should be. On the Lord. Um, Without his strong hand, could Moses and Aaron have done anything? To release the, the Israelites? Absolutely not. Can you and I, apart from the Lord, do anything? No. Without abiding in the vine, we can do absolutely nothing. As Moses' first attempt to deliver Israel had proven. Well, now that the Israelites would not wrongly give honor and glory to God's rods, Moses and Aaron, for their freedom, and now that Pharaoh had truly thrown down the gauntlet, refusing Israel even a brief religious pilgrimage and even mocking the power and the very existence of the one they sought to worship, it was all-out war. And you don't want to go to war. You don't want to go to battle with God. (laughs) doesn't turn out good for you. I am that I am was about to show Pharaoh and Egypt and Israel and the whole watching world who he is. Now, as the Lord continued to reply to Moses's concerns, what he does is he gives him um, his battle plan, basically. Not a battle plan, but he gives him his plan. And it's sevenfold, wouldn't you know? Seven parts to this plan. It's his plan for redemption, how he is going to redeem Israel. And uh, it's in verses 2 to 8 of chapter 6. It's prefaced with a reminder of his covenant that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, Moses and his people should know that it was because of God's covenant with their patriarchs, which included the promise of the land of Canaan, that he was honor-bound to fulfill his promises, right? They're not going to stay forever in Egypt because he had promised the patriarchs, I'm giving you the land. It's yours as a heritage forever. And um, his word is never broken. So Moses was to remind the Israelites that God Almighty had heard their groaning and he did remember his covenant. That's in verses 3 and 5. They were going to learn also a new significance to his name, Jehovah, which is actually Yahweh. He had been known to the patriarchs by by that name, but it was basically as the giver of promises, the giver of the covenant promises. Now the people were going to also know him as the fulfiller of those covenant promises. So they're going to learn a new aspect to his name. The primary spiritual lesson of the calling of Moses to lead the Israelites out of their Egyptian bondage is that it is not at all about Moses not about Aaron it's not about their miracle working shepherd rods it's not even at all about Israel's obedience because if there's one thing she wasn't it was obedient it's not about Pharaoh's permission you know what it's all about it's completely about the Lord completely he not only predicted their return to the land, he now gave them this sevenfold promise that he would rescue them from their burdens and from their bondage. He would bring them into a new relationship with himself. And uh, all they had to do, these, he gives seven I wills. I will do this, I will do that, I will, seven times. And all the people had to do this is an unconditional covenant redemption plan. They don't have to do anything except sit back and enjoy (laughs) and have the peace of God knowing he said, I will do it and I will do it. Therefore, I will do it. I said, I will and I will. They didn't have to do anything. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) They could enjoy peace even in the midst of tribulation like you and I can because this life is full of tribulation and troubles. We had a gold star wife yesterday that joined our Bible study. just breaks my heart. Her husband was killed in Afghanistan, November 27th. She's young. She has three little girls, seven, four, and one. Talk about a heartbreak. Oh. Pray for her. What was her name? 
Allie. Allie? Yeah. Hammond. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It just, just overwhelms me. Um, what we go through. But, you know, the Lord is the answer. We have to cling to him. And we can have not only the peace of God, but we can have the peace... I mean, the peace with God when we're born again, but we can have the peace of God even in horrible situations like that. But unfortunately, the people, um, even after after uh, Moses delivered God's I will promises to them, they um, it says they hearken not to him, 6-9. You see, their present, for them, their present sufferings were too large in their minds to put hope in the words of a man who had just brought them more pain than they had had before he showed up. Now you can kind of understand that, right? But they're, they're just, they've long forgotten about God. It's been too many years and they hadn't seen him do anything. So they, they have no desire uh, to do anything that might further aggravate Pharaoh. The problem was that they had spent too many years thinking of themselves as slaves and forgetting that they were the children of the king of kings. They're the children of, you know, they're the covenant people. The children of the covenant-keeping God. Unfortunately, Pharaoh loomed larger in their eyes than God. We have to be careful of that. Government does not loom larger than God. Politics does not loom, you know, God is in control. He's on the throne. Well, amen, yes, we need that today, don't we? We always need it. Um, but we learn from Ezekiel why the Israelites in general were not putting their trust in the Lord at this time. I want you to read it. Go home and read Ezekiel chapter 20 and you'll be shocked to learn that what the Israelites were doing at the time God was preparing to uh, deliver them from their bondage in Egypt. You know what they were doing? <laughs> they had been defiling themselves with idols big time. God, Egypt's God's. You know, that's why the frogs and the lysos were all different forms of their different gods. They had 37, 39 different gods they worshipped. Um, and she would not cast them away and she would not forsake them. But it says in Ezekiel that the Lord would not pour out his fury on her because when she was in Egypt, because he didn't want to profane his own name before the heathen in whose midst they dwelled. Now, he wanted to punish her for turning to idols, but he wasn't going to do it while she was living in Egypt because that would be, you know, bad for him. My people have turned to your gods. So where is he going to spank them? <laughs> he's going to, yeah, he's going to get them. Don't you do that with your kids? No, you don't spank your kids. Yes, you do spank your kids, but you wait until you're out of the grocery store in the privacy of the... <laughs> So he takes them back behind the woodshed into the wilderness. Because guess what they're doing even in the wilderness? First thing, Moses disappears for 40 days and they build a golden calf. So they, they, they deserve the punishment they got. Anyhow, uh, Moses says, now he's told again to go before Pharaoh. And this time, don't ask it as a nice, polite request. And don't even talk about the three days journey. You're to go, and this is in 11, you're to go back before Pharaoh, and you're to demand that the children, that Pharaoh let the children go out of his land. You see that? Just go. Let us go. And Moses then says, you know, well, how is he going to listen to me when uh, the children of Israel didn't even listen to me? Uh, he, he slips back to feeling unworthy, but this time it's good. You know, the first time he says, I'm not eloquent, I'm slow of speech, I can't talk very well. Now he says, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. That means he's feeling his sinfulness in the presence of holy God. This is a step of, pro this is progress. So he's, he's, what he's, he's not fearful of Pharaoh. Do you know that? He is not fearful of Pharaoh. It tells us in Hebrews 11 that he did not fear what the Pharaoh might do to him. What he was fearful of was letting God down and letting his people down. And so, you know, that is good. That's good. Uh, he's saying he had a de defect. Um, moving along for time's sake, verse 13, the Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron and he makes it, you know, Moses is again kind of wavering here. You know, oh, you don't really want to use me. I don't have, I'm not clean. I'm not worthy. Isaiah, remember he said the same thing. I'm a man of unclean lips. And so God says to him, basically, you don't have a choice in this, Moses. I, this is not a request. This is a charge. Um, 
It was a command, not an option. It was his will, God's will, for Israel to be brought out of Egypt. And one way or another, the children of Israel and Moses and Pharaoh needed to know that they had absolutely no say in the matter. I don't care about your excuses. I don't care about Pharaoh's denial. I don't care about the Israelites with their idols. Yes, I do. But one way or another, you're going to leave Egypt because that's what I decree. And then we see he begins with his first three I will promises in verses six and seven. He says, first of all, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Second one is I will rid you out of their bondage. Third one is I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and great judgments. Now, I just have to quickly tell you because this is so fascinating. But the uh, first three promises assure Israel of complete freedom. She would not only be free from the burdens, you know, the work, the bricks and the straw, but she would be rid of her bondage. She'd be out of slavery. And then um, what we find is the word sibla, which is the word for burdens, appears only six times. In Hebrew, that word sibla appears six times in the Bible. All six are in the book of Exodus. These are the last two times it ever appears in the Bible. The word sibla is burdens. This is a book about deliverance, isn't it? Exodus is a book about redemption and deliverance. Deliverance from what? Burdens. The burdens of sin, the burdens of guilt, the burden of death looming over us. So it's appropriate that all six times are found in the book of Exodus. These are the last two times. The word never shows up again in the whole Bible, but its root word does. And guess where the root word to Sibla shows up? Isaiah 53. <gasps> Isaiah 53? If you ever want to witness to a Jewish person, read them Isaiah 53. A lot of them are forbidden to read that chapter because it's so obviously about the Savior. But here's where it shows up. Isaiah 53, 4, we read of Christ's redemption work on the cross where it says, Surely he hath borne, here it is, borne, Sibla, our griefs and carried our sorrows. It also shows up in Isaiah 53, 11, when we read that uh, he will justify many for he shall bear, Saba, our burdens, their iniquities, excuse me. So isn't that fascinating? You're going to be delivered. Who's the one who's going to deliver you? You don't see that word burdens again until... There he is, the one who bears the burdens. Another interesting bit of information about the I will promises here is that statement, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgments. That is the very first time in the Bible we read about the redemption of Israel. Very first time, the redemption of Israel. It's also the very first time we read that little statement with outstretched arms. The Hebrew word used here for redeem, I will redeem you, is actually not a verb. It's a noun. Strange. You know what it is? Goel. Ever hear the word goel? If it sounds a bit familiar, it's because it is the word for a kinsman redeemer. So what he is actually saying here is, this is his literal words. Yahweh saying to Israel, I will kinsman redeem you. I will be your kinsman redeemer and I will do it by my outstretched arms and by great judgments. And the great judgments were poured on him, weren't they? For us and for Israel. It is amazing. Then he goes on to say, I will take you for, to me for a people. I will be to you a God, the Lord your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it you for inheritance. There's so much more to say about that, but we're out of time. I do want you to notice, who did he say he would give the land to? Thank you. Okay. I don't care. I'm going to get political for a minute. I don't care what those new Muslim congresswomen say. I don't care what the media says. I don't care what AOC says. God said that the land would be for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, as a heritage for how long? Forever. Forever. Remember that, and don't be tricked by what the world says. Well, then in verses 14 to 27, we have a genealogy. Of all crazy places, a genealogy shows up. What do you do when you get to a genealogy? You skip it, don't you, because you don't want to... <laughs> it's interesting because it gives us the immediate descendants of Reuben, the firstborn son of Jacob. It gives us the immediate descendants of Simon, the secondborn son of Jacob. And then when it gets to Levi, the thirdborn son of Jacob, it gives us an expanded genealogy. Why? Because Moses and Aaron are both from Levi. 
So it tells us about Levi's descendants. Here is where we find out that Levi had three sons. His middle son, Koath, was the one, the son from whom Amram came. Who was Amram? Their father, Moses and Aaron's father. We also find out that their father married Jochebed, who happened to be his aunt. So his, their father married his own aunt, his father's sister. We also learn that uh, um, Aaron, we learn who Aaron's wife was. Her name was, pretty name, Elisheba. If your name is Elizabeth, Elisheba is your name in Hebrew. And um, she gave Aaron four sons. And I'm sure many grandsons, but only one is mentioned, and his name is Phineas. Why do you think he's the only grandson mentioned? Well, because in the book of Numbers, he becomes a great and mighty, zealous priest for God. So that's kind of a quick genealogy of Aaron's descendants. One last thing. Did you know that in ancient hieroglyphics, Egyptian hieroglyphics, you know they wrote with little pictures and, and that's called hieroglyphics? Well, the hieroglyphic sign in ancient Egypt for might, for the word strength and might, you know what it is? <laughs> This blessed me when I found this. Outstretched arms. Wow. Way back in the days of Egypt. Many, many centuries. Two millennium. Three millennium. I don't know how many before Christ. Their symbol for might and strength is outstretched arms. It is his story, isn't it? (laughs) All right, let's pray. Father, thank you again for the richness and the truth of your word. Thank you that we can depend on it because you are indeed the God of truth. You cannot lie. You cannot deceive. Everything you have proclaimed to us is indeed your word. It will be fulfilled. It centers on your son. It is magnificent. It is wonderful. And I pray, Father, that if there is someone here, if there should chance be someone here who has never made a firm surrender and commitment to you, Please, I beseech you that she would stop resisting today, that you would open her heart and her eyes, that she would call out to him because you are mighty to save with your outstretched arms. And you never turn away the genuinely repentant sinner who accepts your redemption work on his or her behalf. We love you, Jesus. Go with these women and bring us back safely next week in only one week and help me stretch my time so I can get the lesson ready. Thank you, Lord. Amen.